Please bow your heads with me in prayer. Father, we do declare that you are sovereign over us. That everything is yours. That all that we have and all that we are is yours. May you continue to shape us. Continue to grow us. May we open ourselves up to your work and truly find joy and excitement as you shape us more and more and more. Father, let your work continue in us. Make us look like your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. So last week, and last week Wednesday, you'll probably remember Dr. DeRue was... Um, giving a message in chapel, and at the time, I was taking my daughter to surgery at the hospital in Sioux Falls, and they have this neat deal where as a parent, you can calm your child down. They give you like this weird space-looking suit so you don't contaminate anything, but you can go into the surgery room and hold her hand as they gas her out and then begin surgery on her. One more in a series of surgeries that they've been doing on her throat since she came home. And I'm in there, and we're starting to get to know these people in the room a little bit, but I can't tell always who they are behind their surgical masks inside the room. As my daughter Eve lays on the table, one of the surgical assistants undoes his mask, pulls it down so I can see his face, and says, should your daughter really be wearing those pants? And I look down, and I didn't even realize, they say Northwestern Raiders down the side of her pants. And he says, you do work at Dort College, don't you? He said, sedate her, take them off, burn them. <laughs> I'm just kidding. There's a lot of great people that graduate from Northwestern who end up working for Dort people. And <laughs> but it was so recognizable for them just to sort of see this just simply written across. So I thought, I'm not going to have this happen anymore. To any of my children, I want people to absolutely know that we, maybe we could have come up with our own uniform for Dort College. So on graduation day, when you walk across the stage, we don't just give you a diploma, but you have a Dort uniform. <laughs> Ladies, don't worry, there are yoga pants options as well. <laughs> How is it, though, that we choose to be recognized for who we are in the world? How does our identity become marked for everyone around us to see? In so many other religions in the world, you hit a certain age and there's even a certain physical demarcation on your body or something that you put on, something that becomes this public statement. And yet in the culmination of the teaching in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he describes that what the world will know us by will be our fruit. It's not what's written down the jogging pants on our legs or the coat we wear or the diploma we receive when we walk across the stage. What will mark us out will be fruit. It will be the evidence that Jesus is at work within us and at work within the world. I think there's been a fatal flaw that has come about for the American church in the last so many years, though. We've just shifted a little too far one direction and believe that what will make us stand out and what will make us distinct is not necessarily what we look like and how we act and fruit, as Jesus described, but we have aligned ourselves and marked ourselves out too much by simply what we believe. 
And if Jesus had summarized all the law and the prophets to say, love the Lord your God with all your mind, and then walked away, that would have been fine. But he didn't. When we want to find something significant out about somebody within our community, and when freshmen all come in and you're trying to figure out each other's denominations and where people are from, we ask people, what do you believe about this? When people come on admissions and visitor days to campus, they want to know, what do you believe about this? And we feel that we can figure a lot out about a follower of Christ simply by what they believe. What's interesting, though, is this is only, according to Jesus, one-third of the equation. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven. There have been a number of prominent authors who have been writing to the American church in the last 10 years who have been increasing this call saying we need to move a little bit more further away from our stress on orthodoxy and let's start talking about orthopraxy. Your generation has said, give us the experience of what it means. We can't just simply talk about this. We need to roll up our sleeves and do it. I want to love God with all that I am. It's not just about what I believe. It's also about whether or not my life falls in line with what I believe. Belief alone is not exactly what God calls of us. Even in the Great Commission, baptize and make disciples, Jesus would be confronted with people asking him about issues of right teaching and belief, and he would often push the conversation towards what it is that people must do and what a life transformed would look like. In fact, when Jesus would encounter a potential new disciple, his invitation to them wasn't, what is it exactly that you believe? And are you familiar with the Westminster Shorter Catechism? Because I need you to sign here, here, and here. What does Jesus say? Follow me. This is the rabbi's invitation. Come and walk behind me. Look like me. Think like me. Act like me. Talk like me. Be like me. And I will transform you in the process. If there's maybe an Achilles heel in the Reformational tradition, perhaps it's this. That we have celebrated and at times even found too much pride in thinking well. Don't get me wrong, we need to keep thinking well. But we also need to act well. And a Christian conviction needs to move beyond mere belief. I thought about this. Not only did Jesus not actually write any confessional statements, he didn't make any of his disciples sign any of them. And even the confessional statements that we have today, I, I think a demon could sign on the dotted line for the Heidelberg Catechism. I don't think he would argue with a point in it. A form of subscription? I think the entire demonic realm in the world would agree. Yep, agreed, uh uh-huh, yep, 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 all the way down the list. So that's not what sets us apart entirely. Belief alone isn't going to get us there. Jesus wants more than mere belief. One of the authors in the last 10 years who's been writing about this sort of call, and you've been reading their books, are some of the most popular ones in Christianity today because it's resonating with a heart that says, I want a little bit more than this. Authors like the like, with the likes of Francis Chan, David Platt, Radical, Crazy Love, a Christianity that calls us to more. Francis Chan puts it like this in his book, You and Me Forever. He says, Christians in America have become experts at conviction and failures at action. 
This is how he describes the people that we're finding in the church. He says, they are fed more and more knowledge every week. They attend church services, join small group Bible studies, read Christian books, listen to podcasts, and are convinced they still need more knowledge. Truth is, their biggest need is to do something. They don't need another feast on doctrine. They need to exercise. They need to work off what they've already consumed. Some have become so used to consuming the Word without applying it that you wonder if they even can. These are the spiritually bedridden, resigned to spending the rest of their lives studying the Word without ever making disciples or tangibly caring for others. These are the ones about whom James asks, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Now hear me well, I'm not proclaiming some sort of gospel of works righteousness. But if we grasp and stand before God in belief long enough and truly understand who it is that He is, we cannot help but be moved to something more than just belief. If I had to tie the common threads together in one-on-one pastoral care conversations I get to have with you guys regularly, I would challenge you and say this. That this is the stage of life where you begin to ask the questions, and you need to ask this question as well. Not just, am I going to take upon myself and assume what it is that my parents believe, but will I follow Jesus? Not just will I believe all the right things, and will I sign on the dotted line that this is what my mind agrees with, but does my life agree with my mind? Do I look like these things that I say I believe? Are we allowing the love of Christ to consume our lives to such a greater extent that it brings about a uniqueness to us that is refreshing to the world that looks like fruit, fruit that Christ says he would bring in our lives to those who will pass by us and see us and interact with us? Will we look different? Paul describes this movement toward maturity. And I would argue, and I want to put before you guys this morning, this is one of the most serious aspects, maybe one of the most important you need to decide and ask for yourself as a moment of maturation and growth in the Christian life. It's easy to say that we agree with something. It's much harder to put it into practice and let Christ have his way in us. This is Paul talking about the growth toward maturity now. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 15. All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too will God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Joining together and following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies 
so that they will be like his glorious body. There's this repeated notion of living and living up to and becoming what you already are, to what you've already attained whenever Paul starts talking about maturity. And I get a picture in my mind of a bunch of people playing reverse dress up. Instead of little kids dressing up and playing and acting like adults, like my little children always do at home in their play kitchen and with their play toys, and they pretend that they are all adult and all grown up. Too often we see Christian adults all around us in the world today acting like we are still spiritual children, not acting like what it is that we have already attained. And this is one of the great, greatest lies of Satan that we buy all the time, that you are not yet who Christ says you are. And we fear that this is going to mean some sort of heavy responsibility upon us. We feel that being a grown-up and mature Christian and a life that is transformed that means hard sacrifice is not going to be as life-giving as Jesus says. But this is one of the great movements toward maturity. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Keep your eyes on those who live as we do. And listen to what he says before he sets this up, what it looks like, what the path of destruction is. is many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Not many believe as enemies of the cross of Christ. There's not a lot of people saying, uh, speaking and spewing a lot of hatred toward Jesus in our culture. It's not so much that. It's not about belief. Many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. So we're driven by desires, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. One of the things we need to talk about and think more thoroughly through is all around us what's taking place, and that our lives truly are this battlefield continually. John and I were talking this week, we've seen more instances bubbling up to the surface of spiritual warfare on our campus and around this community than we've seen since we've both been here. And it's been fascinating to us. What makes that happen? I don't think there are more people believing than there were before. But when the kingdom of darkness gets threatened in its strongholds in the places where we act, it kicks back incredibly hard I don't know a whole lot and wasn't trained a lot in a Reformed tradition on spiritual warfare. A lot of those conversations are new to me. I called up on Sunday morning this guy. I think I'll put his picture back up. A good friend of mine, Emmanuel Bimba in Liberia, and they confront this all the time in their, in their culture. And I said, explain this to me. Explain why we're seeing what we're seeing. And what is it that you understand about spiritual warfare, angels and demons and how this works? And he said the exact thing that we're talking about. He said, Aaron, I see this all the time. There's so many people who grow up in the church. There's so many people who believe but haven't given God a full house cleaning inside their entire being yet. There is not just an entire surrender to the work of Christ. And wherever that hasn't taken place, there is still opportunities for us to be deceived by the lies of the evil one. It's a a level of sanctification to another degree. It's not about whether or not you are a follower of Christ. It's not about whether or not you are a believer. It's not about whether or not you are saved. It's whether or not you become a powerful weapon with the kingdom of God breaking into this world. 
And if we allow ourselves to be opened up, we're absolutely everything he gets. And Emmanuel says, whenever you see that, whenever that starts to happen, that's when it bubbles up. That's when the ground begins to rumble and shake. It's fascinating. The birth pains, the groaning of creation. On the front lines of our lives, that's what that is. That's what that looks like. Can you go to the next one, the next slide? As I listen to people talk about what it is that we assume our lives are going to be, this is sort of like the, you all have taken enough English classes to know exactly what this looks like in the narrative arc within a story, right? The rising action, you have the climax point in the story, and then the denouement, which is such a fun word to say. And I think that as I listen to our stories, most of us sort of have a narrative arc of what we imagine our life is going to be like. And so often I realize that as I listen to our stories and as I live out my own story, I realize that this is also how I envision this, right? There are things that take place and you graduate from college and you're sort of setting this trajectory. You have dreams and aspirations of what you will accomplish in life and the things that you will do, the person you will come. Maybe you will attain some sort of peak within your career or in your family and then you sort of, um, I'm like one year away from 40, so maybe that's like the, you know, the over the hill point and then you start going all the way down. Um, And then you just sort of cruise into retirement. That's like the American dream model, I guess. It's sort of that assumed a narrative arc of life. Now, for the follower of Christ, we need to fit our Christianity in there somewhere. So if you go to the next one, when I hear people's stories, eternity is just sort of this paralleled universe. It's something sort of outside of the narrative arc and the dreams and the scope of what we're crafting and what we want in life. It's other than, it's separate from. You ever felt like this when you think all the way through your life? I'm not sure our dreams are all lived and set up in light of eternity. When you imagine what you're going to do with your career or with your family, are you planning these things in light of eternity? Are the treasures of the kingdom of heaven and not the treasures of of this earth those that are driving our decision-making? What do you want your marriage to look like? What do you want your life to look like? What do you want your career to look like? What's driving you underneath all of that? What does the narrative arc look like in your life of what you are imagining? Because you will follow that. I would argue the biblical picture looks more like this. Do we find the ways that we're dialing ourselves into the ways that God is moving in this world? We are setting trajectories and lines that aren't just about now and here. They aren't just about this place. We are investing in the treasures of the kingdom of heaven to make an eternal difference. Because eternity will break through at some point in time. Paul hits on it in this passage. And we eagerly await, listen to what he says, a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. So first he describes, but our citizenship is in heaven. That's our primary allegiance, right? Our citizenship is in heaven. But he doesn't describe heaven as this otherworldly, apart from thing, the little blip outside of the narrative arc of our life. It's right in it. It's embedded in it. And we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. From there, who is coming here? From there, who is invading here? Our eternal trajectory is not separate from the narrative arc of your life. What is the ultimate you're dreaming about? 
that you could attain. We don't normally do this. I am assigning homework. Sorry, you didn't think of that when you came to chapel. I would love one conversation, one question to go between us sometime on this campus today or in your room with your roommates tonight, around your dinner table, as you go home to your family, wherever your role is in this community. And let's just not talk about what it is that we believe and keep these things apart from us. We're doing, in the premarital class we're doing right now, um, we're talking about the assignment for this week was to write a mission statement for your marriage and your life. What do you want it to, to be all about at the end of the day? Let's live as people of purpose. Let's live with people who are following that trajectory line. So the question I want all of you to ask each other is just simply this. If we're not just supposed to believe, but we're also supposed to follow. Ask someone, not just in a how's it going kind of way, but in a real way. Where do I look like and where do I not look like Jesus to you? Where do I and where do I not look like Jesus to you? And don't let him give you a cheap and easy answer. Find someone who loves you enough to tell you the truth. Because there are still too many times, we've got to be honest, there are places in my own life, reading through that passage, where I can see where my God is my stomach. It is my desires for the things of this world yet, and it needs to be altered and changed. I can talk all about the Bible all day. I know what I believe. It's whether or not I'll follow. That's the question I still have to address. Will you pray with me? Father, challenge us into our continual growth within you. That we would be people who have been baptized and make disciples. That we are those who believe and follow. That we would exist within our Christian communities in such a way that we can call each other out. Find the inconsistencies between what we say and what we do. And Father, where we are gorged on doctrine and ideas and knowledge and starved on action, convict us and show us where to make these things come true. May we be alignment, in alignment with your commandment to love you with all of our heart and soul and mind. Amen.